0: Hello and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings. And the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit meditation center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. All right, we'll go ahead and jump in today. Uh, for the next 32 weeks, Rachel and I will be breaking down the Buddha's core teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So buckle up, we got a long road. (laughs) Um, One of the things I love about this tradition, as many of y'all have heard me say before, is that the Theravadan Buddhists, the kind of old school Buddhism, the lineage that we get our, our community from, it tends to circulate around a lot of lists. There are a lot of, you know, four of this and eight of that and 12 of that and six of that and so on and so forth. So, as a teacher, it's helpful to know okay, we got the four truths, the eightfold path. I'm doing them, Rachel's doing them, so we got 32 weeks ahead of us. Um, And of course, what's helpful is that the Buddhist teachings are always, um, the Buddha says that his Dharma is. Is, is visible it's visible in our everyday ordinary lives so it's not something you have to learn comprehensively you don't have to come to all 32 talks to kind of get the point um, but if you do you'll win a new car so come on out <laughs> um, 32 weeks we're going to be really breaking down some of the fundamentals of the practice and today the topic that we're going to start with is the first noble truth we're starting at the top which is the truth of dukkha, dukkha. If you're new to Buddhist communities, we like to talk a lot about dukkha. <laughs> and right now, I'm not going to translate that word. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. But dukkha is quite the topic of conversation in, in Buddhist communities. It's a very important part of our practice. Um, it's also something I, I try to orient myself towards throughout my day. Uh, is dukkha, and it's something that my wife and I talk a lot about. Probably at least five, ten times a day we talk about dukkha because my dog is also named dukkha. <laughs> uh, so, and dukkha means something like suffering, so I have a dog that's name means something like suffering, which sounds really awful, but it's not, and we'll talk about Maybe later you'll, you'll realize why it's not such a bad thing. Dukkha is not such a bad thing. Um, But before we jump into the first noble truth, the first thing I wanted to do is to step back a second and talk a little bit about the Buddha's life story and why Dukkha played such an important role in his spiritual journey. and a central part, really, in his ultimately his liberation, his enlightenment, why Dukkha was such an important part of it. Many of you may know the mythological story of the Buddha. I may talk a little bit more about the historical Buddha, which is what the the historical religious scholars predict may have been uh, the context of the Buddha's life and what he was living in 2,600 years ago. He was born into a region of northern India, which is modern day Nepal. And at the time, that region of India was highly stratified, which meant there's a lot of rigidity around the class structure. And it was tied, it was instricably in woven into the worldview of the religion at the time, too. So not only were you born into a certain class, it was believed that you were born into that class for a reason, and your duty was to perform the roles of that class, to not go outside the system. And they believed that if everybody did their duty, it would uphold something called rita, which means order. It's universal harmony. And the result of that universal harmony, if you lived within your class and you upheld your duty, was something called swastika, right? So... We know where this comes from in our kind of more contemporary, uh, you know, how this was adopted and taken, but from Sanskrit, from the Brahmanistic kind of tradition. And so it was pretty predetermined at birth what your role was. And there was a hierarchy and the further along you were in the hierarchy, the closer to God you were, the closer to awakening. Lucky for the Buddha, he was born into the kind of upper echelon of, of the class system. So he was in the warrior class, uh, which was only second to the priestly class. But the warrior class were kind of like the Jeff Bezoses of the day. They were the top of the line in terms of wealth. Because if you were a priest, you were closer to God, but you probably didn't have as much luxury and wealth as, as the warriors did. So. The Buddha was likely born into this caste and he was given all the wealth, the the comfort, the pleasure that he desired. He probably had every streaming service, he probably flew, you know, comfort plus at least if not first class. Like he was on top of the world in terms of luxury. Um and he was not only given all the material pleasures, he was really laid out a path in front of him for his success, you know, for his livelihood, to be a source of admiration, his career, so on and so forth. So a tremendous amount of privilege. Um, his father probably wasn't a king, like is said in the myth. He was probably just a, a landowner, owner. Um, but that was a hard thing to come by in those days. And if you had land, you usually kind of sharecropped them out, and then you had people that owed you debts, right? And he was probably also an elder in the local village and community. So this was the Buddha's future. All he had to do was just walk the path that was already set up for him. And not only was it reinforced in his family, but the whole culture reinforced it too. He earned it by birth, right? Um, But despite this, the comfort and the security that he had laid out at his feet, uh, the Buddha grew increasingly unsatisfied with his life. And we know this, and we talk about how you know your your money and wealth and prestige aren't really where your true source of happiness comes from. Um, but the kind of addiction to that lifestyle is, I think, a lot more powerful than we realize. So he was unsatisfied, and it's said that one day he went into town. He kind of tricked one of his uh, his servants, his attendants, to bringing him into the village. And it said that he, for the first time in his life, stumbled upon these things called the four heavenly messengers. So he saw an aging person, he saw a sick person, he saw a corpse on the side of the road, and he saw a spiritual mendicant, a spiritual practitioner, basically a monk. That had given up the class system and had gone outside of the class in search of a deeper, more authentic happiness. So could you imagine being so sheltered you've never seen an aging person or a sick person or really even heard about death before? Now, I don't choose to believe that the Buddha never saw these things or had awareness of these things. But I think instead, it wasn't that he was seeing these things for the first time, but that on that day he saw these things in a new light, right? He started to see aging and illness and death as a truth that himself would experience, something he could relate to and internalize. And it is often the case that when we have these kind of moments of awakening, they shake us to our core, right? They kind of shake us out of our ruta rudimentary way of being and our habits and our creature comforts and that type of thing so maybe for the buddha this was just like for us an ordinary monday existential crisis right Uh, things you've known all along but becoming true to your core something that really moves you And what did the four heavenly messengers give him or remind him of on that day? I think what they reminded him of is the precarious nature of life, how fragile and vulnerable life can be. You know, and how if he was so unsatisfied and unhappy with things as they were, was he willing to just set aside that fact and keep going with life even though he was so unhappy? Or did he have to try to find maybe a, a way to live more meaningfully with a deeper, genuine happiness. A happiness that's not born out of worldly material and, and status and power. And Franco Stasecki is a Buddhist teacher that teaches a lot, practices a lot with people that are in the dying process. He, he is a hospice end-of-life a caregiver for many, many years. He talks about how death and the reminder of impermanence can do this, can shake us to our core. And he says, death is not waiting for us at the end of a long road. Death is always with us in the marrow of every passing moment. She is the secret teacher hiding in plain sight. She helps us to discover what matters most. And the good news is we don't have to wait until the end of our lives to realize the wisdom that death has to offer You know, and so we say things like this. We say, you know, life is is short and uh, everything changes and uh, we will get older and our children will grow up and our circumstances will change and so on and so forth. And we know this intellectually, but to let that shake us at our core, you know, to realize that all we have is this moment. The future is just a thought. The past is just a thought. You know, all we have is this moment. And to find a way to find peace in this moment. You know, that it needs to be the most important thing. Because as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the future is just an infinite succession of present moments. And so how do we learn to see clearly into what is causing pain and suffering in our life in this moment and to respond wisely to it? Another reason why I believe that this wasn't an experience that the Buddha had, that he had never seen an aging person or a sick person or a dead person, is because he himself says it. He actually talks about his internal experience of what happened on that day. He said, I will tell of how I experienced Samvega. And Samvega is this Pali Sanskrit word that means spiritual urgency, this urgency to seek the spiritual life. He said, I'll tell you of how I experienced Samvega. Vega. Seeing people floundering like fish in small puddles competing with one another, as I saw this fear came into me. The world was entirely without substance. All the directions were knocked out of line. Wanting a haven for myself, I saw nothing in the material world that wasn't already laid claim to. Seeing nothing in the end but competition, I felt discontent. And then I saw an arrow here, so very hard to see, embedded in my heart. Overcome by this arrow, I ran in all directions, but on simply pulling it out, I didn't run and I didn't sink. this hustle and this grind, you know, this endless kind of consumption. It's not just about the world out there, it's about the mind's promise for something that it never pays out on. You know, that my happiness is around the corner and the next thing, that one day if I only get the partner, then I would be happy, I wouldn't feel so alone. And then we get the partner and we realize that loneliness isn't contingent upon being in a fucking relationship. Sometimes we realize that the conditions, can not we can't get them to a place where they're ultimately satisfying. There's nothing wrong with these things in the world. There's nothing wrong with worldly things, but they don't provide our ultimate happiness. I think the Buddha saw the merchants that day in the village going about their day, and I think he saw the elderly person uncared for. That's what I think he saw. I think he saw the uh, sick person uncared for. I think he saw the people in poverty uh, looked over. And I think he saw the competition all around and this fighting and vying for power and the comparing that goes on in the thinking mind. And he, he, this fear arose in him. You know, this isn't a way out. This isn't a, a, a path to freedom. And so this spiritual urgency arose in him. It's, it's described as an emotion, as a wholesome emotion. Uh, this sense of, I call it the gift of desperation. Fuck. I don't have any answers, but this isn't the solution. You know, I sometimes call it purgatory, right? Like that place of, I know what's not working anymore, but I don't know what will. Have you ever been there? <laughs> this is the most fascinating part of my job as a, as a therapist, is that I see that people come in equipped with the answers to their own life already. Logically. We know that you know your your relationship alone isn't gonna make you happy and and getting that new job isn't gonna ultimately make you happy, maybe for some time, but you still gotta deal with yourself, right? Like what is it, John zinns book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. So here we are, right, with ourselves, with with these thoughts and these feelings, and, and they don't go away. Uh, our conditions can temporarily suppress them or push them to the side or you know, so on and so forth, but they don't go away. And, and sometimes we end up in this place of, of what I believe Alan Watts calls the wisdom of dissatisfaction, the wisdom of our own dissatisfaction as one of our greatest teachers. I found this to be true in my own life experience. Many of you all know You know, as many of us are, I'm a person in recovery. Uh, I got into a pretty hardcore drug addiction from the time I was 14. And it was the consequences that led me to go to treatment. I got arrested. I went to jail. I went to treatment. That's kind of what you do when you're given that option. So I went, and you know what? I was really miserable without drugs and alcohol. I was 18 years old. I was living in a sober living house. Most of the people were older than me. I felt completely trapped in this new way of life that I wanted nothing to do with. And uh, that misery started to get louder and louder and louder the longer that I didn't drink or use drugs. So that first month, the second month, the third month. And we don't talk a lot about this in recovery. We try to share the gratitude, right? But you know what? It actually sucked. It was pretty miserable. And uh, so what I did is I did what I had known to do, which is I ended up getting high, and I got kicked out of the sober living house, and I was staying at the Hallmark Inn off Gallatin Pike. I don't know if any of y'all have ever ran in that territory. Um, some of the, the you know, mobile home communities off Dickerson Pike, smoking crack, You know, pretty, pretty wild ride. But I felt something in my body feel like, like it was dying. And it wasn't just my physical body. <laughs> it was like my, my heart, you know? And um, I, did, I didn't know what to do because I did not want to be in this recovery world and this life I didn't relate to that I didn't find any hope or optimism in. And I didn't want that either. And I was in that place where I was suffering. And I thought, okay, if I could just stop perpetuating my suffering, right? There, the, Ajahn Chah, one of my favorite teachers, meditation teachers, he said that there are two types of suffering when you get to this point. He says there's the suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. He said if you're unwilling to embark on that second type of feeling your misery and dissatisfaction, then you're sure to repeat that first type of continuing to go lost in your habits, perpetuating suffering from here to infinity. So there was no escape. Whether I decided to get high or I decided to stay clean, it sucked. This was quite a profound moment for me because I realized something fundamental to an addict that I had never known before, which is life is, does not guarantee pleasure. That life is dukkha. That there is an element of suffering and dissatisfaction. And what we get is the tools of how to work within it. To go through it. Not an escape from it. And the Buddhist path is precisely that. It's a path through embracing the suffering that we experience. Not seeing suffer- suffering as a problem. Not seeing it as a personal malady. But seeing it as a shared experience that all of us have inherited by being born into this realm. And so what does the Buddha say about this? He says in his first teaching ever there are bhikkhus, which means you know, fellow students. There are students, two dead ends which should not be pursued by one who has gone forth. Which two, on one hand, there's the addiction to pleasure through indulging. He says it's undignified and unfulfilling to oneself. He says on the other end, there's the addiction to self-punishment, which is painful and undignified and unfulfilling to oneself as well. He says the middle way, the middle path, students, is awakened to by the Tathagata. He's talking about those who have gone forth into the spiritual life. The middle way does not lead to these two dead ends, but makes for vision and knowledge. He's saying it's giving you the tools. It's conducive to helping calm, to lucid understanding, to awakening, to freedom. And he lists it out. This is right view or wise view and wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. You see, from the Buddhist perspective, happiness is a collection of good habits. It's not about the conditions that you live in. It's about how you relate to them. Life is going to continue. This world of samsara, of impermanence, it's going to continue to deal out what the Buddha calls dukkha. So let's let's look at dukkha. He says, this is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear to you is dukkha. Separation from what is dear to you is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. He says this psychophysical condition, meaning this this nervous system experience of being human, is dukkha. He says, but in response to dukkha, what happens? He says there's this arising, this arising of, of craving, of wanting it to be different than how it is. Have you noticed that? I don't like dukkha. I don't like the separation and the grief and the aging and the sickness. I don't like it. So he says, what happens is there arises this resistance to it, this craving that is repetitive. He says that wallows in, a, in attachment and clinging, obsessively indulging in this comfort and that, distracting ourselves away from it. He says, craving for stimulation, craving for status. Craving for non-existence, even craving to not even be in this world. Suicidality is a craving, he says. We we hate the pain that we experience. He says, but this is the ceasing that comes about through the path. The freedom that comes by developing the skills to live life on life's terms results in the fading away and the cessation of that craving. We no longer resist it. We no longer need it to be otherwise. The letting go and abandoning of that craving and in in result, freedom and independence from the craving. Not from the dukkha, but from the craving. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, wise view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. So is the Buddha making a proclamation here? Is he saying, I'm going to tell you some capital T truth about life and I want you to follow it and believe in it? No. The Buddha's offering a contemplative practice. He's offering a comprehensive set of tools and skills to be undertaken and cultivated, to be practiced. And he gives us four tasks. Of which I'm not going to go over all of them, just the first. He says, such is dukkha. It can be fully known, it has been fully known. Such is the arising of craving and reactivity, it can be let go of, it has been let go of. Such is the ceasing of reactivity, it can be experienced, it has been experienced. Such is the path, it can be cultivated, it has has been cultivated. So you see here, the Buddha is not giving us truths to follow. He's giving us tasks to practice, to fully understand dukkha, to let go of reactivity, to experience the ceasing of the reactivity, the freedom that comes when we disengage from those reactive habits, and the path that help us to do that. Central theme to the Buddhist teaching is that genuine happiness doesn't come from indulging in pleasures addictively or the avoidance and hatred of pain. It comes from relating to pleasure with non-attached appreciation, joy that is not clinging Not having to constantly feed. We'll talk about in a couple weeks this word tanha, thirst, craving. This unsatisfied, feverish longing for stimulation, for more, for the next thing, for the next adventure, the next relationship, the next pay raise. And not that the pay raise of the relationship is the problem, but when we make our happiness dependent upon something we don't have, we always feel like we're lacking and we're always striving for something that exists outside of the moment, don't we? So when something you know is bumming us out, and we're, our mind is telling us it shouldn't be this way—this, this, my daughter shouldn't be crying, and my mother-in-law shouldn't be passive-aggressive—and my, you know, so on and so forth—we make our happiness condition on things being different than how they actually are. And the Buddha says. Our happiness, genuine happiness, doesn't come from getting way, things to be the way that we want them to. It comes from relating to our experience differently, relating to the painful, discomfortable experiences with compassion and understanding. Embracing the discomfort and saying, ah, oh, right now it's like this. You know, Paul McCartney says it best, right? Let it be, let it be, let it be. I don't like it, but it is, so let it be, and just open my heart and soften around that. That's hard to do because everything in the nervous system is saying, no, it shouldn't be. And meditation helps us to cultivate that that equanimity, that in the middleness, the middle path. So what is dukkha? Dukkha is the Buddha's first noble truth. It's not a truth with a capital T, it's something that we want to reflect on and to embrace about life the meaning of dukkha now we'll get into breaking it down a little bit some of y'all may have been like you know i've heard you talk about dukkha this whole time i still have no clue what that means (laughs) now we'll get to it dukkha originally was the word that they used to describe like an axle And uh, the wheel well of an ox cart not fitting right together. So it's basically where like an axle is disjointed from a wheel well. So I always say it's like the, the, you know, shopping cart at the grocery store with the dead wheel. The Buddha's saying, have you noticed that life is kind of like be like that sometimes, you know? (laughs) you're just trying to like kind of get through and you're just dragging a wheel and it, and it, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's stressful. That's my favorite definition of Dukkha. Dukkha just means kind of stressful, but the stressfulness of life, in my opinion, the way that the Buddha teaches, he's saying it's not a problem, but that's just how it is. That is how life is. And, um, And sometimes I like to define dukkha as just vulnerability, that there's not any uh, ultimate control around how life shows up day to day. And so you're driving to work, and you get the flat tire, and you're like, oh, you're like pissed off to have this amazing thing that's been driving you around (laughs) without getting a flat tire for all these years. And you get the flat tire and it feels like an interruption, right? That dukkha. Just like, yeah, I didn't know I was going to get that when I woke up this morning. I couldn't have planned or prepared that. Another way to describe this is in, in Tibetan communities, they sometimes talk about, and the Buddha actually talks about this in the oldest literature too, of the groundless ground. That life is inherently groundless. It's like jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. And you're falling and falling and falling. And you have very little control over the falling. But then you realize that there's no ground. The sense of, you know, that we're going to... The mind can somehow free us from our demise. You know, that, that we even have any control in the first place is just an illusion. That we will come to accept aging and sickness and death. And come to accept it as a very natural and normal part of life, just as much as the air we breathe. So, how do we come to accept that? Well, the task here is to fully know it, to understand it, to make it a part of your spiritual practice. There's one layer of dukkha that in Pali Sanskrit is referred to as dukkha dukkha. <laughs> I love the Dukkha Dukkha. The Dukkha Dukkha is the unavoidable, inarguable Dukkha. This is just like the shitty shit that you're born into. right? So sometimes I've heard Christina Feldman, a Buddhist teacher, refer to these as the inarguables, which I love. I love that term. So the physical body is a realm of discomfort. It's inarguable. It ages, it becomes ill, it will pass away. Uh, we want to take care of the body, yes, but we also cling to the body. And, and clinging, remember, is what causes the suffering, not the body itself. There's pain, but that second arrow, you know, that, that mental suffering around the body is trying to force the body into youth or into the ideal of what we find culturally attractive. And think about all of the suffering that we have around our bodies you know the anorexia, the orthorexia, the compulsive—you um, know—cycles of of trying to fit and form ourselves into a box, and uh, how isolating and ostracizing it can be if you feel like you're in a body that exists outside of that box. You know, and so we're like in this system of of self-improvement and we're trying to improve a body that just breaks down. So you want to take care of the body, yeah, but to cling to youth, right, to cling to a level of attraction that uh, is an illusion, that is perpetuated, you know, it's it's on the relative level not an illusion, (laughs) I get it, it's a very real pressure, but it's one that has a lot of suffering in it, doesn't it? So this is the dukkha dukkha is that we all have a body that has physical limitations. You know, some of us have chronic terminal illnesses. Um, some of us, all of us actually will experience grief and loss. We're not able to escape this objective level of reality, birth, aging, sickness, death. But what the Buddha is saying is you can escape the denial and resistance of it. And it's actually truly liberating to embrace the impermanence of your body and of death. Like Frank Ostasecki was saying, is that it can teach us a lot about what it means to live in this moment. About what is meaningful and purposeful in our lives. So we're all going to be telling our you know, physical trainer that we don't need to go... <laughs> Just accepting it how it is, right? The middle path, right? <laughs> Take care of the body, but we want to embrace, you know, not live in denial about the nature of it at the same time. So that's Dukkha Dukkha, but there's also the Dukkha that comes from impermanence itself, you know, and this is actually the type of Dukkha that comes from pleasant experiences being impermanent. So the Buddha says that there's this particular flavor of Dukkha that, you know, You eat the bowl of ice cream and the ice cream disappears. You know, you go on the vacation and the vacation ends. You know, the beginning phase, the honeymoon phase of the relationship changes. And we can't always stay in that initial moment of pleasure. I call it the Sunday dukkha, right? Which I've talked about a lot. That feeling on Sunday before you have to go back to work or when you're a kid you have to go to school and you can't enjoy the moment because you know it's going to (laughs) end. So you cling to it and you try to do everything in one day and then you're so overwhelmed you don't do anything and then you feel like shit and then it's Monday again and then you're locked in that psychological cycle. I noticed this Sunday dukkha a lot once I had a kid. It's like... My time, my precious time, you know, where am I going to get my time for me and my time? And then I would get time for me and I, I wouldn't know what to do because I was trapped in this psychological cycle of, of clinging to freedom rather than embracing that my life is different now. How do I find freedom in sharing my time? Right? And and actually, when I embrace it, it's far more enjoyable than having my own time. Far more enjoyable. But still to this day, it's a hard shift. So this is what's called the parinama Dukkha, which means the, the anxiety of trying to hold on to things that are constantly changing. You ever notice that? The last but not the least, probably the thing that our practice helps us with the most is what we oftentimes refer to as the second arrow, which is the mental suffering, the mental story that the mind creates on top of usually already difficult situations. So let me just say some simple examples about this first, some things that I found the Buddha didn't teach, but are helpful for me, which is we, we tend to struggle with taking Our suffering to be a personal experience, like it's something that's happening to us. And we oftentimes kind of tend to judge our progress and how we're doing based upon how we're feeling a lot of the times. And your feelings aren't a good indication of how you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, so you feel depressed, and then comes the narrative of, of the person that's depressed. Right? I feel unworthy, and then comes the narrative of the person that's unworthy. And I call it the lawyer mind. The mind tends to gather evidence that backs up your emotions. And while your emotions are okay, they don't tell the truth most of the time. So the mental suffering is the self-made stories, as Brene Brown calls it, right? That, that extra level of uh, I, me, mine, you, yours, uh, you know, competing, proving, comparing, predicting, outperforming, anticipating, all of that kind of extra. In Buddhism, we call this the second arrow, because if life wasn't already hard enough, we start to construct an identity around our pain and make it personal. And you know what happens when we do that? Is we separate ourselves from the reality that we all share in the pain. And I'm a big fan of, you know, of, of one of the biggest... Um, epidemics I've kind of seen in our our culture, especially in the West, something that's made people like Brene Brown very popular is shame. And how the trance of unworthiness is uh, unintentionally incredibly selfish in that we somehow feel that we're not involved in the same pain that other people share. That somehow it's unique that I feel ostracized and alone and not good enough. When actually it is, isn't it obvious that it's the most common to us all? That one of our core wounds is feeling isolated and separate from others? Interestingly, let's go back to the axle and the wheel. You know what that word dukkha means? When literally translated, it means separate from the other. A sense of feeling isolated in your pain, like it's yours. And so we, as Brene Brown found, with shame, we, we have to share it. We have to be vulnerable. Interesting, because that's what the Buddha is saying. Dukkha is vulnerability. Be vulnerable about the ways we feel separate from the other. We have to share it. We have to see each other in our pain. That's the antidote. And that's what the Buddha is saying, too, is, is to fully know. Dukkha means to embrace it, the vulnerability. So, easier said than done, but that's why we have a community, that's why we have a practice, and that's why we have mindfulness. Mindfulness helps us to notice the second arrow. You know, the mind is always trying to help, but it's not often doing what we need. So, we want to allow these experiences of suffering to be our teacher. And first and foremost, what's important to say is that I feel like when teaching this truth of of life is stressful, life is vulnerable, life is fragile, life is insecure, life is not within your control, when the Buddha is teaching this, he's seeking to normalize it and validate it. He's trying to tell us there's nothing wrong with you if you're having a hard time. And it's important that you remember that. If you're struggling, there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing uniquely you about your struggle. You know, we need not to force ourselves into a place of isolation where we feel we're beyond help. You know, there's no path to freedom in that. This is someone that has experienced chronic, you know, very intense severe depression at points in my life. My depression always tells me I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm always going to feel this way. It, it likes to isolate and separate. And I don't want to be around other people because I don't feel good and they don't wanna, I don't want to be a burden on them. So we, we convince ourselves you know, that we're separate. But instead to, to take the Buddha's comfort and saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. This is actually very real and this is how it is. Uh, because life is dukkha. Life it, it experiences this level of stress. It's woven into it. And he says that what we need to do is to be honest about the ways we suffer. This is the word dukkha perinya, which is the task. Parinya means something like to understand or to know, but it also means something like to be honest about the ways that we suffer. Mr. Rogers says anything that's human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can become more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming and less upsetting. People that have an ability to speak the Dharma to kids are always the best teachers. Anything that is human is mentionable. Anything that is mentionable can become more manageable. Interesting. That's the heart of what the Buddha is saying here. So can we mention it to ourselves when we struggle? Can we say, this is really fucking hard for me? And then and then here's the practice. May I open to this pain? If I'm unwilling to be with my pain, who's going to be with it for me? Those early years of recovery for me, those early moments of, of recovery, I wasn't willing to be with my pain. I didn't think I could. Fortunately, I found some people that would help do it with me. So you need that, but... In the meditation practice, you know, we've got to sit with that shit. Blaise Pascal says all of our human suffering stems from the fact that we can't sit in a room by ourselves. What comes up when we sit in a room by ourselves are the things we don't want to sit with. So we do all this endless wandering around and distracting. And, you know, I'm talking about myself and it's not personal. That's just how it is. But I don't have to perpetuate that i can sit and i and i try to be open to the pain and difficulties in my life to let it in and over time you build your capacity to be with pain the second you know phrase i use in the compassion practice is may i be open to the pain and difficulties in my life and then may i care for the pain and difficulties in my life and the third phrase i use is may i know that caring is enough It's not here to fix. My my teacher, Dave, used to tell me, Andrew, you can't outsmart suffering. The Buddha's not teaching you a way to stop suffering. He's teaching you a way through your suffering and to help alleviate the unnecessary suffering. Right? I just want to close with this uh, quote by Jeff Brown. And these are his wonderful words on how we can't bypass the struggle, right? You've got to go through it, not around it. He says, it's not about letting it go. It's about letting it in. It's about letting it in deep. It's about letting it through. It's about being true to your feelings and about giving your experiences the attention they deserve. And that may take a moment or it may take years. The trick is not to shame your need to hold on to what has yet to be resolved. Let it go is the mantra of the self-avoidant, feigning resolution because they lack the courage or the preparedness to face their feelings. Let's not play that game. Let's let things in and through until they're fully ready and truly ready to shift. Let's let it grow into the transformation at its own heart We write our story by fully living it, not by letting it go before it's time. It takes what it takes to go through our struggle. We can't rush it. There's no way around it. It's an unsolvable math problem. And this is the thing that the Buddha teaches us and reminds us of time and time again. If you're suffering, it's not your fault. Try not to pile on the extra But let it have its time. Let your grief have its time. Let the pain have its time. Let it through you. Don't try to let it go before it's ready to be resolved. So we open our hearts and we sit with compassion. May I be open. May I care. And may I know that caring is enough. Sometimes it's all we can do. What a relief too. I don't have to suffer perfectly. So those are some of my thoughts on dukkha.